Let us pray. Indeed, it is on Christ the solid rock on which we stand. It is because of the foundation that we have is why that we have anything to offer God for gratitude and all the things that He's done for us. We're so thankful for His grace. And now we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may have noticed in our bulletin that we have uh, communion next Sunday and the fellowship dinner following. And our standard operating procedure is to sign up at the back. I see Gar sitting there now, but Mary will probably be sitting there (laughs) when it's over. But I can assure you, Garth will take your money. (laughs) Garth never gets any slack, does he? Also, we have uh, September the 17th is going to be a special presentation on long-term food storage. And you can contact Karen Pennison. Her phone number is there, and we'll be giving you more information as that time grows closer. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have Jesus Christ, the solid rock, our foundation that changes not we can always depend upon, for we live in a vacillating, changing, fickle world. And we need our moorings. We need our places where we can go to that we know is truth, that we know never changes. We are so thankful for Your mighty Word that You've given us everything necessary to understand it. The only thing we add is the desire the positive volition, to be faithful servants, to be able to be overcomers even in the devil's world. So we pray that you will take this portion of time that we fellowship in your word this morning and help us to file what we learn into long-term memory so that we can apply it to every circumstance, all the exigencies of life. We have the answer. We have the power. So we pray that you will help us to focus, for we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I was looking at Joshua today. We started October the 31st, 2010. That was approximately 10 months ago. And we're in Joshua chapter 10. I'm not a wizard in math, but I think that's about one chapter Per month. And actually, uh, that would be about four hours per chapter. So, if I ask you, or anyone would ask you, okay, what have you learned in Joshua? Well, if you answered by saying, well, we learned that the Israelites gathered on the east side of the 
Jordan. God told them to cross. He helped them get across. And when they went to the other side, they built a monument. They not only built a monument of 12 stones on the bank, they also built a monument of 12 stones in the river. And then they observed the Passover. The, the, the very day that they crossed the Jordan, they observed the Passover. And then they also uh, circumcised about probably about 60 to 70% of their warriors, which incapacitated them. In the time when they were most vulnerable, that's when they decided to do this. And then they came against the first city of the Canaanites, which was Jericho. And it had what appeared to be uh, walls that couldn't be penetrated. And they were commanded to circle it eight times, blow the trumpets, and Jericho fell. And then they attacked Ai, the next city, but they were defeated. But the second time that they attacked Ai, they were successful. And then they moved up to an area uh, about 25 miles north to a place called Shechem. And there they had a worship time. And they divided, uh, six twelves went to one mountain, six tribes went to the other mountain, and they were supposed to say certain things. And then they moved back down to Gilgal, which was their home base after they crossed the Jordan. And these people called the Gibeonites came and lied to them and induced them to, at least the leaders, to make an oath that they would in, essentially incorporate them into uh, the Israelite system and they would protect them. And then the next thing you know, the Gibeonites are being attacked by five kings that they used to be associated with. And they came and they, they hollered help to the Israelites. And the Israelites came to their aid and they won a victory at Gibeon. And then they chased them all the way up. They started up north and had a long swing back towards the, the south. And they chased them about 20 or 40 miles. And that's kind of a synopsis as to what I've learned so far. Now, if you did that, I would say, well, you got a pretty good handle on the history of Israel. But I ask you what you've learned. What are these chapters about? You, some people look at the Bible and it's more of a forensic type of understanding. They get the facts similar to what I used to have to endure when I took history in school. I didn't like history because it was just about facts. You had to memorize a certain amount of dates and there was a war here and a war there. But they never connected the dots. They never told me why anything happened. And that's why a lot of people, they look at the Bible and they're getting these facts and they think, well, yeah, you know, that's okay, but uh, I can get history in other books. But now if I ask you, what have you learned so far in Joshua? And you told me that you have learned that our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And He can take care of any of our problems or any of our woes. And if we trust Him and we obey Him, He is going to do wondrous things in our life. 
and we have nothing to fear. I would say, by George, I think you've got it. You see, the Bible isn't just about a bunch of facts. In every chapter, God is revealing Himself to us in every set of circumstances. And once you understand, this is what it's really about. This is what Joshua is about. This is what the whole Bible is about. Once you connect to that wavelength, then you can't wait to get back and find out how is God going to reveal Himself in this chapter. It's going to be a whole other set of circumstances. And by seeing how these people trusted sometimes and sometimes they didn't, we can learn how we are to live our life and how that we can trust God in every set of circumstances. When I went to A&M, I had the first history professor that really knew how to teach history. And that was my favorite course. And when I went to high school, it was just, oh, well, where are you going? Well, I'm going to history. Well, did you memorize all your dates? Well, I'm going to give it a shot. That was the attitude. But because this history knew, this history teacher knew how to, how to teach because he was showing the why. Why did this happen? Yeah, there was a battle, but what was it about? What was the strategy? What was the outcome? What were the people thinking? And it was, it was kind of like, uh, what, I don't know about you, but uh, I love the, the series Lonesome Dove. Uh, it, you know, it, and it comes in parts. And every time at the end of a part, I couldn't wait. I wanted to see that next part. And that's the way the Bible should be to you because every time you turn a page, God is saying, this is how I am. This is who I am. This is how you can relate to me. This is what you need to do. This, do you want happiness and success? Do you want joy? Do you want confidence? Do you want peace of mind? Do you want all these things? This is how you find it. So it's not just a bunch of facts. God is revealing Himself. And He's teaching us. Now, I'm going to start this morning by going back just a moment. I guess I better get this off. It's just blank anyway. I'm going to start this, mor- this morning by just touching on chapter 9 of Joshua. Now, I know that we've, gone, we've been in Joshua. I know that chapter 9, and we've already done, and we've moved on to chapter 10. But in keeping with what I just was saying about these different chapters, there are a couple of things you should bring out of chapter 9 that are extremely important. And that is, first of all, God is explaining to us He does not lie. He says what He means. And when God says something, you can trust Him. You can believe it. Now, God wants us to be the same way. And what chapter 9 is doing is explaining to us that we have a God that keeps His Word and He expects us to do the same. Now, we live in an age of expediency and stretching the truth, bold-faced lies. This is pretty much what we have come to expect because it doesn't matter whether you go to the TV, to the uh, newspaper, to magazines, 
But whatever it is, for the most part, uh, people are exaggerating. A lot of times it's bald-faced lies, and we've become skeptics. And we've become used to accepting people who give oaths and break it, and they get by with it. And God is saying in this chapter, no, that is not the way that I am, and that is not the way you are to be. And if you think that you can be different from me, and you can say things and not mean it, mean it, and if you can say things that are lies, then you're in a world of hurt. This is what we're seeing in chapter 9. The Gibeonites lied to the leaders of Israel, and the leaders did something stupid. There's so many things we can learn from this. They thought, well, let's see. It sounds logical. The empirical evidence seems like what they're saying is truth. I don't need to go to God. I, got, I, I can handle this one. <laughs> That's the same thing they thought when they went to Ai. They thought, hmm, it's a smaller town. We just had a big victory. We won't bother God. We'll just, I've got, I got a handle on this. We have a handle on nothing. Zilch, zero. Jesus Christ said, without me, you are nothing. Once we start to understand that, we start to become grace-oriented, and we start developing our entire life on trusting who and what God is, then at least we start moving in the right direction. So they made an oath, and it was stupid. Three days later, they found out they had been conned. The people were saying, oh, man, you, you don't have to go along with that oath. These are pagans anyway, and they lied to you. Just because you said it and you vowed before God, he'll understand. Well, fortunately, Joshua knew better, and things got very sticky after that. It was bad enough that these people were going to be welcomed into the body of the Jews, even though they were going to be uh, wood choppers and water haulers, they were still embedded into the Israelite society. And then the next thing you know, they're attacked by five kings. And it was even harder for the Israelites to keep their oath then. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'll get to that in a moment. Here's two things. I was talking about the importance of... Uh, keeping your word, that can manifest itself in two ways. Doing what you say you're going to do. Your children are watching you. Your children are learning from you. And when you tell your children that you're going to do something with them, they're looking forward to that. They're depending upon that. And when you start saying, well, you know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't make it this time because such and such, such and such. And I understand there are times when it's physically impossible to do what you say you're going to do. But outside of those parameters, if, you're going to, if you say you're going to be at a, a little league ballpark to watch your, your son play baseball or, your, or someplace where your daughter is playing soccer, and you're not there, and you're not there because your car broke down, we understand that. But short of that, when you start not showing up, you tell them you're going to do something, you don't do it, then they're learning from you. It's not important to do what you say you're going to do. And they're hurt and they're let down. There's always consequences. When you just slough it off and you make rationalizations and you excuse yourself, 
That's not the way God operates. That's not the way He wants us to operate. Furthermore, when you don't do what you say you're going to do, many times it's just an outright lie. We have to be truthful, all the time truthful. Again, our children are watching. How important is that that they learn from you, just like God is teaching us through His Word? Do what you say you're going to do and be truthful. Don't ever lie. How many of you have ever been in a, in a situation like this? You're going into a, a, some kind of theme park and they want enough money to get in that you need to mortgage your house. You know how it is these days. And your child is there and your child just turned 12 years old. And you get to the ticket booth and uh, they say, how many? And you say, uh, uh, four adults and uh, two children. And they look at the 12-year-old and they say, uh, children under 12 are free. And you're looking at the price and you say, yeah, she's under 11. And your child is right there. Now they know they're 12. You've just taught them that honor and integrity isn't even worth $10. They remember that. God takes note of that. See, we don't emphasize what God emphasizes. And one thing that we're taking out of Joshua chapter 9 is that we need to be absolutely truthful. And when we say we're going to do something, especially when we make a promise, even when we regret it, we're to hang in there. This even goes as far as making oaths to God when you get married. And then later on, you start having, I don't know, I wouldn't say buyer's remorse, but um, <laughs> let's just say second thoughts after you have already made an oath to God. And I think if we were all honest, we would have to say that there are times in marriage then it's not all we thought it was cracked up to be. The honeymoon doesn't last. The next thing you know, you see your spouse's feet of clay. Curlers? What, do women, I don't, do y'all still wear curlers? I, I don't know. Anyway, if you've never seen... <laughs> I learned this in high school. The girls at school were, man, they were gorgeous. I went, and went to visit one of them, just one of the gorgeous gals. She came to the door and her hair, well, she, it was all, she had 45 rollers in it, big ones. She didn't have any makeup on, and I, I went, yeah! <laughs> if you're married for looks, well, God bless you, is all I can say. You, you just. Here's the serious point. Even when it's tough, whether it's in marriage or anything else, and you have an obligation, you have a duty, and you've vowed and you've given your word, I don't care how tough it gets, God is going to honor you and He is going to bless you if you stick to what you say because that's how He is. And He wants us to be like Him. And when the times start getting so tough, and you don't know whether you can make it or not. 
What we see in this whole book of Joshua throughout the entire Bible, God is saying, trust me. Life is not designed for you to be able to handle it. Life is designed for you to trust me and see me handle it. That's what we're seeing in Joshua chapter 9. Okay, um, let's move on to chapter 10. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, we've already been in 10. Well, we're going there again. Oh, there's one, there was one observation I wanted to make um, before I leave this chapter 9. I don't know. I might go there again sometime. But uh, This is the observation. Why, right after they had conned, the Gibeonites had conned Israel and given them, <coughs> excuse me, uh, this... this Big, uh, big lie. Were they attacked by five kings? They were in serious pro- problems there. They, they, they were. We might say in today's vernacular, they were toast, or we're going to be toast. They didn't have a, a prayer. Why did that happen right then? Well, I think one reason is that the Gibeonites were forced to call on Israel to save them because God was trying to teach them something. They pretended that they were not under the sentence of condemnation when they deceived Joshua. Remember that? They were condemned to annihilation. But they conned Joshua into thinking they were outside the boundaries and so they really didn't need to be saved because uh, they weren't in that particular area. Their lie was that they really didn't need to be saved. This pretense was certainly abandoned when five kings came against them. And then they cried out to be saved. Did God save them? Well, we've already been to this part, remember? <laughs> yes, He did save them. Did, did they deserve it? No, they didn't deserve it. And what do we call that? One word. Starts with a G. (laughs) Grace. He was trying to teach them grace. You see, remember this. This is the distinction between grace and mercy. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. And they certainly did not deserve to be saved by any stretch of imagination. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. Now, there's, a, there's a, a correlation to this about them not thinking they need to be saved. Many people today are like the Gibeonites. They don't recognize that they are condemned and need salvation. They just want to ask Jesus to come into their life or come into their heart so that everything will be better. They think if they turn their life over, they turn their life over to God that He will really appreciate it and let them go to heaven. What they don't understand is that they can do nothing to impress God or to help Him in any way. Unless you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are condemned, not for your sin, before your rejection, your negative volition towards the gospel, 
and you're on your way to hell, the lake of fire, for all eternity. But that's not popular today. Uh, they rather, it sounds like the gospel, so many people are saying, well, let's just ask Christ into your heart, and He will co-op with you, and you can have a lot better life. That is not the gospel. Nobody has ever been saved by asking Jesus Christ into their heart or turning their life over to Him. What, what is your life anyway to Christ? What do you have to add to your salvation? You see, what God does is demonstrate through these Gibeonites who had to learn that they were helpless. They needed help. Help that they couldn't supply for themselves. And so there's a message for us. And certainly when we give the gospel, we want to make sure that they understand that it is a gift from God. It is the gift of eternal life and God's own righteousness. Some people have a hard time recognizing that they really need saving. Okay, let's look. Let's actually... Turn in our Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter 10 and verse 10 and see what God is going to reveal to us today with regards to Himself and the Israelites who are people like us. And by the way, that is not a compliment. They were hard-hearted stiff-necked, rebellious, stupid. And this is what God is telling us through His Word. Verse 10. This is after Joshua heard that they were in peril. That night he marched all night from Gilgal to where they were going to be. And it says, And the Lord confounded them before Israel. Now, this is talking about the five kings. The, the enemy of the Israelites is who he confounded. Now, I want you to underline that word confounded. It's a very important word, and it happens over and over. The Hebrew word is hamam, H-A-M-A-M. It's the cow imperfect. The imperfect means it's continuous action that's going on in the past. And it means, here's some of the words or synonyms for it, it means to make noise, to confuse, to discomfit. I'm looking around. It's pretty good. I've seen if anybody looked discomfited today. Uh, it means to vex or destroy. I like the word vex. We don't ever hardly hear that anymore. But when you see someone these days and they look kind of down, you might say, what's the matter? Are you vexed? And they will look at you like, huh? It's a good word. The Israelites, the, the Israelite army was tired. They had nothing to eat or no sleep, and they were to pursue the enemy for 30 or 40 more miles on foot. They were to do it on foot. Now look up here. Maps are always handy. Um, <clears throat> Gilgal was their home base. Here's Jericho. The, the Jordan River's right here. And when they heard that the Gibeonites, here's Gibeon, 
right here, when he heard that they were in peril, they left that very night. This is about 15 to 20 miles, something like this. See, this is on the plain. They're going uphill all the way, way uphill. And the terrain is rugged. And they're moving out at night. They're rushing to get there. They get to Gilgal, and God gives them the victory. So much so that these tens of thousands are retreating. This is their route. This is where they were, were retreating. And so when we get to verse 10, and it says, And the Lord confounded them. See, He confounded them here. He vexed them. He, he gave Israel the victory there at Gibeon. And He says He slaughtered them with a great slaughter. Gibeon pursued them by way of ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Here is Beth Haran. And Makeda is way down here. This is about 30 or 40 miles. Now, this is where you have to slow down and really appreciate what God is trying to tell us through His Word. It's a normal day. You're enlisted in the Israelite army. And you turn in, and the next thing you know, there's a bugle assembly. And you assemble yourself. Well, what's up? We're marching to Gibeon. Well, what far? Well, they're under attack and we're going to save them. You talking about the, those Canaanites? You talking about those ones who conned us and lied to us? We're, we're supposed to wake up in the middle of the night and march to Gibeon and save their sorry hides? That's right. Okay. So you move out and you march. Now, 15 or 20 miles at night, all your gear, and you get there and you get the battle. And now fighting the battle isn't like it is in modern-day warfare. You don't sit behind a console 30 miles away and shoot missiles. This is hand-to-hand -hand combat. It is extremely exhausting. These people have had no sleep and no food, and now they're going to move out, and they're going to go all the way down here. They're going to pursue these people 20, or 30 to 40 miles. You know what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to depend on the Lord. This is us, isn't it? I mean, have you ever fought battles? I mean, getting from Gilgal to Gibeon and then fighting the battle, I mean, we think that is, whew, that's a big deal, isn't it? In our own mind, we think, whew, that's enough. That's all I can take. Uh, Lord, thank you for the victory. Thank you for giving me the strength and all, but... That's as far as I'm going. That's all I need to take care of. I can't go any further. But they're in retreat, and God says, get them. And you can't linger. You have to continue to get them. So what are you going to do? You're forced to depend upon the Lord. And what we're going to see is that God is going to do the supernatural things that they weren't able to do even to the point to where Joshua is going to look up at the sun, stand still. I need more daylight. And by the way, you too, moon over there, you stand still too. And we've got a lot to learn about that also. One thing we learn is that there's nothing too big to ask from God. 
If he can do that, I think he can handle our problems, can't he? But we are so afraid to ask for some reason. In any case, there are going to be times, and you can identify with this, when you uh, mentally, sometimes it's physically, it may be that you're, there are going to be days that you just don't think you can handle it. It may be physical. It may be like you just feel so crummy. You don't want to trust the Lord. You don't want to talk to people. You don't want to be nice. You just want it to quit hurting. And God says, you can endure it. You can make it. Because I am going to be on the point. I'm going to take care of your enemies. That's what we're learning when they had to go 30 or 40 more miles when they are spent. That's the first thing I want you to, to see about this verse 10. So they're going to have to go from here, Agilon, all the way down here at Libya, they're going to Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Makada. You see, if you were just looking at this forensically, if you, weren't, if you don't understand that God is revealing Himself in every chapter of the Bible, in every set of circumstances, He's showing, look, these people were in a, in a bind. You're going to be in a bind. I'm showing you what I can do if you trust me. If you trust me and obey me, I will take you places and you can do things that you never dreamed was possible. Now, that's what we're learning in Joshua. It's not just about a bunch of five kings with funny sounding names in all these cities uh, like Libna, Makeda, uh, Kiriath, Jerim. That's nearly as bad as Branham. <laughs> By the way, y'all know what Branham means in German? That's what it is. It's a German name. It's not very flattering. I mean, it's, uh, it means burnt ham. <laughs> Where do you live? Well, I live in burnt ham. Now, what is he going to do? Now, let's look at verse 11. And it came about as they fled from uh, before Israel. These are the five kings. They're in full retreat. While they were at the descent of Beth Haran, that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Is God on their side? Is He taking care of things that they could not take care of? You see, God has uh, His own artillery. And it says stones. This is talking about hailstones. One thing about God's artillery, it's always on target, it never misses, and there's no collateral damage. He makes these laser-guided missiles and things that we look like, that we depend on today, He makes them look pathetic. When you can take tens of thousands of fleeing enemy and you're pouring down who knows how many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of hailstones, and you're not hitting anybody but the enemy, I think that's something to, to remember. 
The Israelites couldn't have won the battle. They couldn't have pursued the enemy without God's help. And I submit to you today, whatever you're going to do the rest of the day, whatever you're going to do the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year, the rest of your life, you cannot do without God's help. And every time that you leave God out of the equation, you're just like the Israelites who charged up to Ai, thinking, well, we had a big victory in Jericho. We can handle this. And they got clobbered. You know, God uses nature itself. He controls the entire natural environment. Our great and omnipotent God has power over everything in the universe. Now, I know you, you, you would subscribe to that. You would say, well, yeah, uh-huh, I know about that. He's omnipotent. I've heard that before. But I want you to go to, well, I guess I'll just bring it up on the board. You can go there if you want to. This is what, uh, in Job chapter 38, verse 22, this is what God told Job. See, Job, was he thought he got a raw deal and he was wanting to kind of complain to God. He was questioning God, but not for answers. It was like he was calling God up on the red carpet for all the things that happened in his life. And all God started do, to do was ask questions. Have you ever heard that before? The importance of asking questions? He didn't say anything. He just asked him question after question after question. This is one of the questions. In, in other words, by the time God was asking all the questions, Job said, I'm sorry I ever brought it up. He didn't use those words, but that's what he meant. He got the point. God is sovereign. He is righteous. He is just. He's going to do things that we don't necessarily understand, but doesn't matter. He's God. He's in charge. And so he's asking uh, Job here. He says, have you entered the storehouse of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? God has weapons that will neutralize anything that we have because He controls it all. And He's going to use it on this particular battle. And all these enemies that are leaving, uh, the, the Jews, well, they did a good job. They, they had a victory there. But God kills more of them with hailstones than they ever killed with the sword. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a battle and I see hail falling, it's killing all the enemies, it's missing all of my guys, I'm going to be motivated and I'm going to be inspired. Well, let's keep going. Wouldn't you? And that's what happens in our life when we can't, we can't go any further. And we just, oh, man. Can't go any further, God. He said, yes, you can. Just think of this day. Don't think about further than this day. Rely on me for this day and I have, you have my promise. You can endure it. I will make sure that you can. Continue to trust on, on, in me. Don't think about the problem. Forget the problem. Think about me. You'll be amazed what that one, I don't know whether you would call it a tactic or what. You can't think about the problem and think about God and how great He is at the same time. The more you think about God, the smaller the problem gets. But what do we want to do? Oh, no. Let's focus on the problem, throw a big pity party, and invite everyone. And they're not, they don't care. they got their own pity party. 
So this is one of the things that we see. And this is, by the way, this is, the, uh, this is not the only time that God is going to use hailstones in battle. He's going to use it again. You know how we know? Look at that. Revelation 16:21. Now, we're not talking about just modern times. We're talking about times that hadn't even happened yet. God is going to use hailstones again. This is in Revelation 16:21, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. What's the biggest hailstone you've ever seen? I saw some about the size of golf balls one time, and I was freaking out. When you have golf ball-sized hail falling, you're not... Uh, let me put it this way. It's got your attention. At my house, I have a plexiglass. It's a 4 by 8 plexiglass in my um, breakfast area. And it was being pounded by golf ball-sized hail. What do you think I was thinking? Anyway, 100-pound stones. Each came from heaven upon, uh, upon the men, and the men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now see, when God pours out his wrath, people react in one or two ways. They either curse God and blame him and say, and they shake their finger at him, or they are humbled. And they say, you are God, you're in charge, you've got my attention, what do you want me to do? I'm ready to do it. I am submitting to you. You're going to go one way or the other. These people, um, they decided they wanted to box with God. And it's not a good idea. They wind up being destroyed. You know, it's one thing of being destroyed, but if you're gnashing your teeth and pointing your finger at God while you're doing it, that makes it all the worse. Uh, something else I want to bring out why I'm doing this about the... Uh, what God has under His control. Do you know that God could knock out... Uh, he could knock out within seconds every major weapon system by both Russia and America by just simply manipulating the electromagnetic field of the earth. You see, the ICBMs have in their nose cone all the devices that uh, track it and direct it and so forth. And all God would have to do is just tweak the... Um, tweak the poles a little bit, throw the magnetic poles off, and what would happen to uh, all the what would happen to all the missiles and so forth? I don't know, but they'd be look like I made them. They would be, you know, probably going up and coming back and hitting their own spot or something. But he other things that since he controls the nature, since he controls everything, we have what 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 would uh, an earthquake do to a runway? Hmm? What would it do all the missiles and silos and everything? What would what would that do? Um, how about if he had uh, floods? If he had, what about the ships out on the ocean when there's a tsunami? What if there was a country that sent an armada and was going to wipe us out? Is that a problem for God? He can just go, oops, tsunami, like that. They're wiped out. They're gone. They're on. They will experience the same thing that Pharaoh's army did uh, when they were crossing the Red Sea. They would be baptized. <laughs> water baptized. Listen, everybody's water baptized is not saved. 
You know, it was extreme fog that enabled Washington and the colonial troops to cross the Delaware River unnoticed by the British. Was that an accident? You just can't box with God. But if you obey Him and trust Him, he, he, he uses all these things in your favor. Now, I said a while ago it was real important, that word, and we're going to see some other things about this word. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to see how God uses this over and over again. First Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to start with verse 3. We're going to read from verse 3 to 13. First Samuel chapter 3 verse, <coughs> uh, excuse me, chapter 7 verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. What does this sound like? sounds like He's saying, if you trust Me, if you obey Me, if you seek Me, I'll take care of whatever your problem is. You know what this sounds very much like? A verse that probably most, if not all, y'all are familiar with. Do you know the verse? It's Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Do you all remember that verse? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sins, then I will forgive their sins, I will hear their prayer, and I will heal their land. Is that relevant for today? So is... Joshua chapter three, uh, chapter seven, verse three. Now, Ashtaroth is just a hideous idol that they had. Verse four. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, "Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you." And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. I want you to underline that we have sinned against the Lord. That's the first step in having a right relationship with God. Even if you're an unbeliever, you have to understand that you are a sinner and God is righteous and just and you've got a problem. And if you are a believer, then it's confessing your sin, 1 John 1, 9. Verse 7, Now the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Verse 10, Now Samuel was offering up burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Now I want you to get this. 
This happens over and over. It happened in, in Joshua. Samuel was not rallying the troops. What was he doing? He was getting right with God, him and the people. And while they were doing this, here are the Philistines, and they're sneaking up, and they're fixing to launch a sneak attack on them. Did they have to worry about that? Didn't they just ask God to forgive their sins and to protect them? Even though some people would say, no, they should have been mustering their troops, getting ready. No, they were, doing, they were getting right with God first. And then it says, But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they, they were routed before Israel. I want you to underline confused there. Guess what that word is? Hamam. It means to vex. <laughs> it means to crush. It means to destroy. Who did that? God did that. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far below as, uh, as below Bethkar. Doesn't that sound familiar? What were the Israelites doing outside of Gibeon? They were chasing the, the Canaanites. And the Philistines were descendants. They were in that same area anyhow. Then Samuel took the stone that said and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means stone of help, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Why? Because they got right with the Lord first. Because they recognized they could not handle it themselves. And they trusted in the Lord. And they knew something that I hope that you know. When you seek the Lord, when you ask Him for help, when you obey Him, when you trust Him, He has to respond. Because of His very nature and because of His Word. He said, when you do these things, when you seek my face, when you humble yourself, when you acknowledge your sins before me and show me your humility, then I will take care of your enemies. I will take care of whatever is in your life that is distressing you, whatever it is. I'm the one. It's all about me. I will fight your battles. Isn't that something worth remembering? That's what we're seeing in Joshua chapter 10. Matthew 6, 33. You can just jot that down. I'm, running, I'm not just about out of time, so I'm just going to uh, quote this one. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and, he, and all these things shall be added unto you. See, everybody, everybody's got it backwards. They're seeking all the things that they want. Material things, soulish things, spiritual things but they're not looking in the right places. Seek God first, and all, everything that you want is going to be added unto you. That's what He's about. Now, God also discomfited Sisera. That's the Hebrew name for sea of horses. 
He was a Canaanite commander who led 900 iron chariots against Israel in Joshua, I mean uh, Judges chapter 4, verse 15. And because the, the Israelites had trusted the Lord, guess what happened to all those 900 iron chariots? I don't know. I guess the Jews made them for a wrought iron fence. I have no idea, but I know this. God took care of them. They were all destroyed. That's what it means. And when it says... He, and they used the same word. They were discomfited. He promised to discomfort or vex all the enemies of Israel in the, <clears throat> when He promised the, the land to, to all those who were in the land. If they continued to trust and obey Him, He would take care of all their enemies. This is in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 27. This is, a, this is a promise that God says, you continue to trust me, obey me, and I'll take care of all your enemies. I will discomfort them. In fact, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 27, he says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion, that is a state of being discomfited, all the people among you who come, and I will make all your enemies to turn their backs to you. You know what it means when the enemies turn their backs? They're in retreat. They're running. That's what God would do for them. He discomfited David's enemies when he sent them, uh, when he sent lightning down upon them like arrows. This kind of reminds me of the hail, only this time he's using arrows. This is what Second uh, Samuel 22 verses 14 through 15 says. It says, "The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice." And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and discomfited them. Only this time it wasn't hail. The lightning was just striking the enemies. And it was like arrows coming down from heaven. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, he discomfited 185,000 Assyrians who had the audacity to go against Hezekiah and the Israelites who were trusting in the Almighty God of the universe. And God said, You humble yourself, trust me, obey me, I'll take care of the rest. 185,000 Assyrians were discomfited. Now what did we learn from this? I've got to close on this. What did we learn from all this? God will fight for us and discomfort, vex, and destroy our enemies if, and this is a big if, we trust Him and obey Him. Do you have any enemies that need to be discomfited? They don't have to be other people. It could be a disease or something that's ravaging your body. That's the enemy. There's all types of enemies. It doesn't matter who the enemy is. We're talking about the magnificent, almighty God of the universe that we are trusting in. And I'm showing you today, from God's Word, He's revealing to us, you don't try to discomfort your enemies. They will clobber you. You trust in me and watch me work and be amazed. Let's all please bow our heads and close our eyes now for just a few moments.
I'm talking about the great and almighty God of the universe who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who is also God. Sent Him to the cross to die for your sins and my sins. And the best news you will ever hear is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And now He offers to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone eternal life. It's not about what you do. It's not about your works. It's about what God has accomplished on the cross for you. That's the biggie. That's the big thing. Once you trust Him for that, then we still need to learn to trust Him for the other things. And the good news is you don't have to do anything other than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to receive the free gift of salvation, of eternal life, God's own righteousness. And you can do it right now. And it's sealed, it's done, your ticket to heaven is guaranteed, not because of who you are or because of what you will do, but because of what God has already done for you. What a phenomenal God we have. Now, Father, we thank you for the high honor to be here, to be called Christians, to study your magnificent and powerful word. And we have the great challenge before us to continue to grow in grace and knowledge, to continue to trust and obey you. May we do it here. May we do it as a nation. And may you continue to shed your mighty grace upon us. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.